who are here and uh, many more of you who are at home uh, following along. We continue in our sermon series, Kingdom Habits of the Heart, and our beatitude this morning. I'm good? Okay. Our beatitude this morning is, um, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But again, we are uh, reading um, these Beatitudes in the context of the chapter, and so let us uh, hear God's word to us from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. And blessed are all those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, and if the, if, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but a stand, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would show yourself to us this morning, uh, show yourself as the God of mercy, the God who uh, commands the heavens and the earth. Uh, wherever we find ourselves this morning, in a place of apathy or despair or joy or perhaps indifference, we pray that you would warm our hearts and turn us towards you. Help us to see your great love and mercy towards us in the person of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is a statement that brings us to the very heart and center of God's character and his disposition and how he deals with us. You might say that mercy is God's policy. And I think the word policy is the right word here. A policy is, describes how things operate, it, how things function, how they run. A policy is the fine print, if you will, that governs the culture and the decision-making process of an organization. And if you have a whole collection of policies then you have what they call a polity, right? Now, if the kingdom of God 
could be described as an organization. Its policy, its whole polity, would be mercy. Because God himself is merciful. And mercy was the distinguishing feature of Jesus' ministry. Mercy was his central message. And acts and deeds of mercy was his chief activity. Now, not surprisingly, um, Jesus' great conflicts and controversies with the religious establishment, with the Pharisees especially, with his mercy policies. The perception was, is that Jesus' continual showing of mercy was undermining good social order. That his message of mercy, especially his willingness to forgive sins, challenged the orthodoxy, or at least the perceived orthodoxy, of what seemed to be unassailable truths, biblical truths about who God was. His mercy practices, his healing, his um, care for many people who are on the margins, many people who are unclean and ritually unfit, seem to be violations of the accepted policies that govern the religious life of Israel for its good and its stability. Now, in describing um, mercy as a policy, I'm being a little bit ironic and rhetorical here. Because mercy is a really hard thing to make into a policy. The whole category of mercy seems to fly in the face of policy, right? Just think about it for a minute. If certain processes at times need to be set inside, set aside in order to deal with an urgent need, what's the point of having a process? If, if, um, if deadlines can be extended for people who are late, why have deadlines? If people can break the rules and still be forgiven, what's the point of having rules, right? How is mercy a policy? A mercy policy sounds more like chaos <clears throat> and relaxing the enforcement of policy rules and law is no way to achieve the justice that we seek by making rules and laws, right? So there's a, a great tension with this whole category and concept of mercy and the idea that it could ever be a policy. Now, a very superficial reading of the ministry of Jesus and his mercy ministries casts him as a religious liberal, right? He's willing to bend the rules. He's looking to look the other way at slight infractions or even big infractions. But as we've seen already, Jesus is no relaxer of righteousness. He's no advocate for anarchy. This is the man who says, just in a few verses after his statement about mercy, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes even further and says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what's the conflict? What's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees? 
especially if Jesus says that your righteousness must exceed theirs. That seems impossible. The difference is this. The Pharisees and the religious culture and establishment of Jesus' day failed to see that it is mercy. Mercy has always been the center of God's revealing will. Mercy has always been the, the purpose and the aim of the Torah, God's word, rightly practiced. The Torah, rightly understood and practiced, produces mercy. Now, a couple, I think, key stories in the Gospel of Matthew help open up uh, what, what I mean and how Jesus under, understands mercy. Early in the Gospel, in chapter 9, Jesus um, encounters the tax collector Matthew. And the tax collector um, was like a Goldman Sachs uh, Wall Street uh, person in the 20, uh, 2008, right? He, he's a, he is not a, he's not a good person. You shouldn't feel sympathy for him. Jesus calls this, people rightly associated tax collectors with sinners, right? Jesus calls Matthew, Matthew comes and follows him. And then Matthew throws this big party. He invites all his, his uh, Goldman Sachs friends, all his tax collector friends, and all his very questionable friends, and Jesus is a part of this party. And the, and the Pharisees, the Pharisees hear about this party, and their immediate question to his disciples is, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? If he was a holy man, why is he consorting and hanging out with very questionably moral people? And Jesus' response here is quite instructive. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus is doing is he's quoting Hosea 6.6, which was part of our our call to confession this morning. He's quoting Hosea 6.6, and it's sort of like he's setting before us a rule, an interpretive rule. Like you need, in other words, to understand the Torah, God's word, his commands, through this verse, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God's desire, especially if you read the context of Hosea, God's desire has always been, rather than to to bring those who are erring, those who are mistaken, those who are in sin, back, rather than hold them in contempt or to condemn them. In fact, the whole history of Israel is a story of their turning away from God, their unfaithfulness, and yet God's consistent faithfulness to Israel. The whole story of Israel has always been about mercy. In another controversy in chapter 12, uh, Jesus has with the Pharisees, they, his disciples, it's a Sabbath day, and his disciples are going through a field, and they pick um, the tops of some grain in order to eat, and the Pharisees see this, and they question Jesus, and they say, what your disciples are doing is not lawful. It is a clear violation of accepted Sabbath policy. We don't pick grain or do work on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response again, he counters with a number of biblical examples that uh, challenge that interpretation, but then he says this, he goes back to Hosea again. 
And he says to, these, to the Pharisees, he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now here Jesus' application of this verse is to a very different situation, but the root problem is still the same. It is a failure to understand that the central aim of God's word is mercy. Mercy. And here the contrast is a little bit more stark between mercy and sacrifice. They represent two kinds of spiritualities, if you will. Two kinds of, of piety. And the piety of the Pharisees is one that is focused on ritual observance and strict law keeping in a most exact way, but at the expense of what is basic human need, which is the disciples' hunger. They have lost the forest from the trees, you could say. They can't see the big picture of God's character and how he has always dealt with his people and this drives Jesus, Jesus drives this point home towards the end of the gospel in his seven warnings in chapter 23. He says this to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. I love that imagery. It's like losing the forest from the trees, but it's more uh, pointed, right? You strain out the gnat and you're focused on all the little details, but you actually swallow the camel because you don't see the big picture. I think it's important not to exclude ourselves from the category of the Pharisees. We all act the Pharisee in our lives. The Pharisees were the biblically orthodox, the, 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 those whose practice looked perfect from the outside. And we all are like the Pharisees. We are experts in the subtle art of neglecting the weightier, matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness in the name of strictly adhering to lesser rules, to uh, fairness, process, theological principle. And the failure is not necessarily that we want rules or that we have rules or that we have a good process or that we ought to have regulations. The failure is in our own hearts. We don't have merciful hearts. We don't see the world with the eyes of mercy as God sees the world, as God sees us. And so we become quite adept and ingenious at masking our lack of mercy behind very reasonable rules and process and theological principles. Let me offer you an example, a personal example. My friend Rusty and I, many of you know Rusty, uh, I picked up Rusty, we were going to breakfast a couple weeks back, and uh, I was driving, and we were waiting at the light to turn onto the highway, and uh, right there on North Avenue, often people stand in the median and they, ask, they panhandle, and they ask for change. And I have a, a policy, <laughs> uh, we actually have this policy here as deacons, uh, um, about we don't give cash to people. 
We don't give cash. We give anything else, but not cash. Um, and this comes from just a lot of good practice and experience over the past 10 years that um, much of the time people use money to sort of keep their addictions of drugs or alcohol. And so I'm sitting there and then Rusty is fumbling around in his pocket looking for, for change to give to this man. And I'm like, no, Rusty, no, we shouldn't be giving him cash. And then we get in an argument back and forth. And he's like, no, we should. And, and at, a, at a certain, I was like, okay. And so I hand the man um, Rusty's money. Now, I think that the principle of, of not giving cash is a good one, but in that moment, I realized that there was a lack of mercy in my own heart that was hiding behind a very good policy. And then Rusty was here willing to act mercifully, even if it meant um, violating good practice, because he had a merciful heart. See, I fear that in the history of my own life, there are numerous relationship situations, different exchanges I've had, conflicts, that if I were able to go back and follow up in conversation with Jesus and ask, Lord, Lord, how did I do in handling this situation, that he would say to me, go and learn. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I know that many of my failures, especially early in my ministry, were because I didn't understand this rule, this principle of mercy. Being merciful is a difficult thing to do for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's just very inconvenient and time-consuming. It's very costly to be merciful. Sometimes... um, it means absorbing a certain amount, sometimes a lot, of injury and insult. And sometimes being merciful feels like a really serious violation of a deeply held conviction or principle that you hold about the world. And the thing about mercy is that it requires an incredible amount of patience and long-suffering. But we are very quick to write people off that offend us or that annoy us. We are quick to make snap judgments and assumptions about people's intentions or the reason why they're in the situation they're in. And oftentimes we're correct about those. And we say in our hearts that a person doesn't deserve my mercy. And yet even when we're right, that doesn't mean our refusal to be merciful is right. See, the whole point of mercy is that it's not deserved. It's undeserved. Nobody is owed mercy. No one is entitled to mercy. And I think this brings us to a proper definition of mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is, mercy is compassion and the offer of help for a person in a, in a place of misery or need Mercy is compassion that moves us to, to help, to take action, to alleviate a person who is in a place of misery and need. And I think in our contemporary world and context, we, we see mercy primarily through the lens of helping to alleviate person's suffering for which they have become, uh, been a victim. 
They've been victimized. It wasn't their fault that something happened to them. And so it's not hard for us to be moved um, in compassion towards people who suffer unjustly. But biblical mercy has more often, it also includes unjust suffering, biblical mercy more often addresses the misery of people which has resulted because of their own sin. And I think we, we struggle, we struggle to show mercy to people who suffer for their own mistakes, especially when those mistakes are things that we've also suffered <laughs> alongside of them that have hurt us. But the reason I think, and this is when we say this, this person doesn't deserve my mercy, but the only way we can think about this is we, is we, we have disconnected our definition of mercy from that of grace. In the Bible, grace and mercy are, are ideas and concepts that always travel together. You might say they're traveling companions. And so we have to, if we're going to define mercy, mercy must be defined in the light of grace. It's not the same thing as grace, but it, it always goes with grace. Mercy addresses not just those who suffer unjustly, but those who suffer justly. <laughs> if grace addresses the guilt of sin, mercy addresses the miserable consequences of sin. If grace takes away guilt and shame for sin, mercy seeks to alleviate the suffering that is a consequence of our sin. Grace offers pardon, mercy extends relief. Grace cleanses and reinstates a person, and mercy cures and helps and heals. We have to understand God's, uh, we have to understand mercy in the light of grace. And God's grace and mercy to us has always been radical. And God's radical mercy towards us is always and is the basis for his radical commanding of us. See, there's no way to understand what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about turning the other cheek or loving our enemy, if you do not have a grasp of mercy, let me read to you what I think is the hardest verses in the Bible to obey. Jesus says, you have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him on the other turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with them 2 miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Radical mercy of God is a basis of his radical command to us to love our enemies. And when we seek to obey these very difficult commands, however imperfectly and haltingly, what we do is we draw closer to the very heart of God, which is a heart that is filled with grace and mercy 
always towards us. Like grace, mercy is not something anyone is owed or entitled to get. It's not something anyone can demand of us as a right. And yet, the Lord commands us to give it to others. God commands us to show mercy to the undeserving. He commands us to love our enemy. He commands us to forgive those who sin against us. How can he do this? How can he require it of us if the person receiving it can never expect it from us? You see the asymmetry here? The only reason he can do this is because he has always been, in his policy towards us, merciful. He has always shown us mercy. He has always extended grace to cover our sins. He's always forgiven our trespasses and offenses. Mercy has always been his policy towards us, which means that mercy is our policy. Mercy must be our policy. To be a merciful person is not to set aside the demands of justice and righteousness. To be a merciful person is not to be a pushover or a doormat. To be a merciful person is not to excuse and enable wrongdoing. In fact, quite the opposite. The merciful person is called to engage in constructive conflict. To do so is part of what it means to be merciful. To act in mercy without addressing the reason why a person suffers because of bad decision-making or their own sin is not to be merciful. It is to be an enabler. It is the very opposite of mercy. Being merciful is not indulging and enabling bad behavior, but the practice of mercy in our lives is always very complex and complicated. It is a process. And it takes a great deal of wisdom and discernment and humility for it to get worked out. And it's very hard to write a policy that can possibly anticipate every situation and circumstance that mercy calls us for. There are no set of rules that we can follow that will always guarantee a merciful outcome. And yet mercy still has to be our policy. The only way for mercy to be our policy, though, means we have to have merciful hearts. That's Jesus' point again and again in the Gospels. He always goes to the heart. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The problem with the Pharisees was not, not really in their, it wasn't in their beliefs or in their practice, it was in their hearts. Their hearts were poison. They, they, they were unmerciful hearts, and it and it, and it tainted and corrupted everything else about their lives. And the reason they didn't have merciful hearts is because they did not have a very real sense that they were debtors, that they needed God's grace, that they had been recipients from birth of God's mercy towards them. For mercy to be our policy, we need to have merciful hearts. And in order to do that, we have to see our great indebtedness to God and his mercy towards us. So how do you get a merciful heart? The answer is that mercy begets mercy. We're able to give mercy when we receive mercy. It multiplies itself. 
Jesus in the parable that you heard in the sacred reading is making precisely this point. I want to read it for you again in its entirety, and I want you to reflect for a moment in the light of what I've said about mercy. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is like a couple million dollars. (laughs) And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made to him. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is like 500 bucks, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But the man refused and went on and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Friends, the Lord is like this king. He has forgiven a million dollar debt on your behalf. There are no amount of debts that people incur against us will ever come close to amounting to a fraction of a cent of what God has forgiven us. Our debt was far bigger. And God continues. (laughs) We continue to rack up debt. And he continues to forgive. Brothers and sisters, remember that you are forgiven. He's been so patient with you. He's so long-suffering and kind, year after year. Renew yourself in that truth. That is the heart of the gospel. He has been merciful to us, and so we ought to be merciful one another. Let's pray. Father, we, we all fall under judgment, your judgment, when it comes to... Um, how unmerciful we can be in our hearts towards others, towards one another, despite the fact that you have forgiven a debt far bigger, one that we could never repay back, and you continue to forgive. Lord, may your grace move us to repentance. May your mercy move us to repentance. And so in our hearts, boundless mercy and grace that um, can move us in mercy towards one another and towards this world. We give you thanks and praise for our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.